you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, get ready. We're going to blast through some questions. As always, looking at how do we find or create work that is, in fact, meaningful, work that we love. Is it possible? Yes, you better believe it. Can you do it in this economy? Absolutely. Can you do it with this political strategy in place? Yes, absolutely. Can you do it with um, financial uncertainty around the world? Yes, absolutely. Circumstances have very little to do with your own personal success. We're going to look at how you can know your passion, how you can live life fully, laugh readily, work with joy, make a difference in the world. Yes, you can do all those things. One of the questions that they ask about, how do we break out of comfortable sameness? How do we break out of complacency? If things are going okay, do we really need to just push for something else? Or is it okay to just kind of put it in neutral? Well, you know I'm going to have a lot to say about that. Well, this is where each week we take 48 minutes to look at your questions, real-life questions, these are not just theories out of a book. These are real life questions. If you got a question, you can go to 48days.com, click on the podcast link. You will see there an opportunity to submit your question. You can either write it out or you can speak it if you want to. Uh, personally, I guess I, I include more of the ones that are written out. I can go through them quicker here. So these are some of the things we're going to be going through this week going to be tight title and my theme today is don't let them should on you now listen carefully there i didn't swear but we're going to be looking at that issue here in a little bit so someone says dan how can i be excellent in my nonprofit job and still have a life of my own how can we get away from the comfort of the familiar and wake up to the joy of becoming something better? What's well, a great question, great way that that's framed. How can we get away from the comfort of the familiar and wake up to the joy of becoming something better? Dan, what advice do you have for small town creatives with no access to a larger market? Hmm. Here's one. Over the last year, I've sent out over 100 resumes. I have received a few rejection letters, but no job offers. How can I craft a plan that allows me to balance the immediate financial rewards of my technology ability with my long-term goal of working as an artist? Dan, why are there few, if any, black speakers? All right. We'll hope to get through all of those and more. Here's our quotation for the day. This comes from Jim Rohn, who said, the key to earning more money is to become more valuable. All right. Sounds good to me. Well, let me let me share some um, success stories. Each week, I try to work some in here. Let me give you just a couple success stories here. Sean says, I just wanted to thank you and share how your teaching has given me the courage to take a risk by starting a mobile games business that combined my love of music and graphic arts to create an app called Red the Music Reader. It's a piano-based game that helps people learn to read music available on Google Play. Anyway, it's Read the Music Reader. Uh, before I started listening to you, I never would have spent the time and risked the money to do something like this. I have several friends in the graphic arts and technical fields who are much smarter than I am. They could have made an app like this, 
probably easier than me, but they're stuck in the low-risk rut I used to be in. Thanks for changing my outlook on passive income and on life. Well, thank you, Sean, for sharing your story, and congratulations on taking action. Created a cool app. I went there and checked it out a little bit, read the music reader. Check it out. Congratulations, Sean. Here's one from Chris. Dan, I wanted to let you know what a positive effect you and the 48days.net community has had on me. I've had a love of drawing since childhood, particularly car drawings. I stopped drawing several years ago, but decided to start again back in 2010. I also decided to try my hand at classic car paintings. At about that time, I found Debbie Dearman's group, Artist Arise. That's one of the groups in... 48days.net. I started to post my art in the forum, got such positive and encouraging feedback from Debbie and the group. In 2012, I started my side business, Chris's Auto Art. I currently take commission work and plan on selling cars at, or selling prints at car shows this year. Thanks so much to you, Debbie and her group for being an inspiration to me. I've attached a sample of my work for you to enjoy, Chris. Chris sent a shot of a 1960 Ford F-100 pickup. It's gorgeous. Chris, I do see your work. I go into the Artist Arise group on 48days.net. I've checked out your work. I I love it. I, my wife is an artist. She's been encouraging me to get involved in art. I'm not sure that I will, but I told her if I did, the one thing I would want to do is draw old classic cars the kind of stuff you have with like with pickups out in a field and thing. I love that. But uh, congratulations on moving ahead with that. You know, we're hearing from lots of artists. That That's the one thing, probably more than any other creative skill, where people really are convinced they can't make any money. And yet we're hearing from artists. Debbie Dearman, who you mentioned here, who has the group artist arise, certainly is one. She had a one woman showing recently at a house just a house, not a gallery or anything, just a house down in Alabama, sold 25 pieces and got commissioned to do five or six more beyond that. Dorsey McHugh, who will be one of the speakers at our Innovate event coming up here in a couple weeks at the Sanctuary, uh, just had an art show in a gallery out in Park City, Utah. She sold 10 paintings while she was there those couple days. Uh, one of them for $15,000. I won't go through all the list, but believe me, she had a very productive few days out there selling her art. Yes, in this economy. Yes, with something that people don't need. They just want it. But again, I, I'm thrilled to see you know, what artists are doing. Well, let me give you one more here before we go to the questions. One more. Now, this I just grabbed from 48days.net. Just something I happened to see as a comment that somebody put up where he said he took the idea from Dan's book. Now, what he's referring to is my book, 48 Low-Cost Business Ideas. Now, you can check that out. If you're a member of 48days.net, you can access it free. It's one of the resources there if you're a member of 48days.net. So you can just go into resources and pull this down, what he's referring to. Otherwise, you can go to our product site, and find 48 low-cost business ideas. We'll be happy to send that out to you. But Andy says, or no, um, let's see, this is not Andy. This is Burke. Burke Jones says, I took the idea from Dan's book regarding the realtor signs. Now, what I mentioned in that book, one of the 48 low-cost business ideas was to put out signs for open houses for realtors on the weekend. 
Now, you know how those go up all over town? Boom, they go out like on Friday afternoon. They have to be taken down again like Sunday night or Monday morning. Somebody's got to do that. And I said, you could contract with realtors to do that. Burke says, I took the idea from Dan's book regarding the realtor signs over the past year and a half. I built it into a very nice side income. What I found immediately is that the market for me was not individual realtors, but rather new home communities. I now have six communities that we place signs out on Friday night, pick them up on Sunday night. The minimum number we put out is 15 per community. We place about 150 signs each weekend and we're making right at $2,000 a month. Pretty sweet deal. And it lets me catch up on all podcasts while I'm out and about. I also created the pricing at the beginning that would allow me to hire a worker, which I'm about ready to do. Now, again, this is just, this wasn't even sent to me. I just happened to see that. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's cool. Now, we're not talking about high tech. We're not talking about a sophisticated idea, but somebody that just simply took action, created a little simple plan, and boom, he's making a nice $2,000 a month extra. How, how, would that, how would that work for, for you if you could make $2,000 a month extra? Would that be a nice little bump? I was looking at a couple things with Joanne yesterday. We were doing some planning. We were actually meeting with a pl- our planner. And um, there, there's two little things that are going to happen in the next few months that will both will affect my income by $2,000 a month each. But, you know, that's going to be a nice little bump when those both those things fall in line but if you need a two thousand dollar idea figure out what fits you what's something you could be passionate about what it is you could do execute on it and you'll be like these other people we're reading about here that are in fact creating extra income readily well here's a question from kent st peter's missouri dan i teach at a small christian college and my responsibilities fit well with my gifts and passions now listen to this question because i get this in some format probably 10 times a week some form of what kent is asking i teach at a small christian college my responsibilities fit well with my gifts and passions however our salaries are pretty low I'm building my side business of speaking, writing, et cetera, and want to develop that into my full-time career within two to three years. Our school is ministry-focused. There's an expectation that you will do extra things, such as speaking in churches, recruiting, and other related items. There are your official responsibilities. Then there is giving back to the school by doing extra. My issue is that if I give my best, meaning unpaid work to the college, I don't have enough time to get my side business off the ground. How can I ethically give my main job my best while also building up my side business as soon as possible? The two two seem mutually exclusive. What does excellence mean here? Help and thanks. You know, this is so common, but let me just make a couple comments here. I mean, this is more art than science. There's not definitive answers here, but there's certainly guidelines. There has to be a reasonable exchange of time for the compensation offered. I mean, ministry organizations, if it's schools like this, Christian schools, if it's a a church, they're notorious for expecting 70 hours a week from underpaid employees. You just have to create some boundaries. 
Now, the people who are drawn to organizations like that tend to be people who are very gracious and understanding and nurturing and compassionate. They find it hard to say no, and so they give and give and give and give. But you've got to establish what is reasonable and then stick to that. So if you give 40 hours of selfless service to the college, then you should have your own discretionary time to speak and write on your own. Don't let yourself get guilted into giving away everything that you have. And this is where I say, don't let them should on you. You should do this. You should do that. Well, if it's unreasonable, no, you should not do that. You should be able to have a life of your own. You should be able to use your own discretionary time outside of work time to build your own income and create that transition. But again, it, it, it comes with a culture in nonprofit or ministry organizations that you just give and give and give until they bleed you dry. And that often happens. And then people leave wounded, worn out, burned out and have little to offer as they move forward. You don't want to get yourself in that position. Tara from Nashville says, Dan, I think I'm on the verge of working my dream job in my dream company. However, it may be a couple of months away before that dream is a reality. I'm still in the interview process. In the meantime, I've been offered another job. The job is okay, but not what I really want to do and certainly not my passion. I hate to accept the job with a new employer and they waste the time and expense of training me and so on only for me to leave in a few months. But I also need to keep a job to continue earning an income. Okay, so here's the deal. Tara has, uh, she thinks she's going to get a job offer that's going to be her dream job, but it's not going to come together for a couple more months. She needs work right now. Should she go ahead and take another job? Yes, but find a job where there's little learning, little training required. So that could be delivering pizzas or mowing yards or waiting tables. I mean, those kind of things where people come and go every day. Just get in there, start making money immediately. You can do that. Don't start a traditional job with the plan of leaving in six months. That really is not fair for everybody involved. So, yeah, trust your lack of peace about doing what you're describing here. You're right. It's not really right to take a traditional job where they're going to have a training program for you when you know and you really want to be out of there in a couple months if this new dream job opportunity comes through. So don't do that. But go ahead and just do something that doesn't require a lot of training. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities to do that. You may do something on your own. You can go out with a, a bucket and a squeegee and wash windows for a couple months. You know, you could probably make more money doing that and you're going to make in a traditional job anyway. Do something like that. You know, do something where there's not going to be a long-term commitment. Nathan from uh, Columbia City, Indiana says, my friend works with rehabilitating mentally ill patients. He spends considerable energy finding them work within the community. However, job retention is very, very low because these clients realize staying on government assistant pays better. How can he help them break out of this thought pattern? Now, here's the real question. Nathan says, ironically, I see the same in most of society. I see fear of the unknown or fear of trying something new. How do we break free from the pattern of thinking that where we are is good enough? When venturing to something new could be far better. How do they and how do we get away from the comfort of the familiar and wake up to the joy of becoming something better? 
I mean, we could, we, we could just stop there. We could write a book about that. How to encourage people, nudge them to move out of just what's comfortable and familiar to the joy of becoming something better. Wow. That, that is a, I mean, we've all kinds of adi- old cliches and adages that kind of speak to this. The good is the enemy of the best. If things are okay, you know, it's hard to take the initiative to move to something better, to rock the boat. Let's just kind of keep things the way they are. The status quo is very attractive. I sometimes accuse people of being locked into comfortable misery. They know that it's not great, but it beats having to move into the unknown. I mean, it's essentially what we see in an abused wife syndrome. Just stick with what's familiar. I mean, there's, there's lots of dysfunctional behavior displayed in staying with what's comfortable. But here's a question that I like to ask myself, and you can decide for yourself, but I like to ask myself, what am I doing today that's going to help me be better tomorrow? You know, if you're satisfied with the life you have now, then just continue doing what you're doing. Now, here's kind of the um, catch-22 in part of your question, Nathan. Our government provides such a cushion that it's a toss-up at some point as to which is better. Just staying where you have your housing, food, medical needs taken care of, or trying to break out by working harder. And here's a young lady, Joanna and I, are helping out. We've been helping her for quite some time, but... You know, came out of prison. She's trying to make it on her own, but she has three small children on her own as a single mom. She is moving toward, and I can see it happening. She's moving toward being in government housing, which she just secured. She's thrilled, thrilled. I, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I would be absolutely discouraged, depressed, mortified, humiliated if I got government housing. No, she's thrilled to be moving into a place that's going to cost her $50 a month. She's thrilled to have all of her food. I mean, they have more food in their closets than we do. Believe me, food everywhere, unlimited food. All her medical needs are taken care of. Well, now she's in that tough kind of quandary where if she goes out, here's how it would work. If she goes out and gets a job where she'd make $1,000 a month, think, well, wow, you know, she's starting to get on her feet. No, then her rent would go from $50 a month to $500 a month. So she really would only be netting another $500. And to do that, she'd have to go through the hassle of taking her kids to daycare and buying gas in her car. So she may spend $250 in a month in gas for her car. Now she's down to only being $250 ahead. The extra hassle of taking her kids to daycare, is she better off? I mean, how attractive is that? It's not. It's not attractive for her to have the prospect of of being able to work and make $1,000 a month. So could she make $2,000 a month? Probably not. She really doesn't have marketable skills. So it really is more attractive to stay under the radar. Now, here's what she'd love to do. She'd love to work and get paid cash where nothing's reported and she doesn't pay taxes. Well, obviously, we aren't going to encourage her to do that. We're going to sabotage that if we get a chance. 
we're going to make sure that doesn't happen because I don't think it's right. But thus, she's stuck in that position that you're describing. I think there is kind of a threshold that you have to get over in order to have the desire to want to be better. I think at a certain level, it is really attractive to not want to be better, not want to change. Now, I think that varies for different people. I mean, there's no point at which I'm going to be content with the way things are. There is never anything that you could not describe a situation where I would say, okay, I've made it. I'm going to just put it in neutral and just coast. I will never be happy staying where I am today. I'm always going to be reaching to become better. Now, even if you put this in terms of, of money, and this is not all about money, but even if we put it in terms of money, Wallace Waddles in the old, old book, The Science of Getting Rich. And if you Google that, you can find their free copies out there. It's a delightful book. But he says there's nothing wrong in wanting to get rich. The desire for riches is really the desire for a richer, fuller, and more abundant life. And that desire is praiseworthy. The man who does not desire to live more abundantly is abnormal. Now, I used to have a poster when I was in college. I remember it distinctly. I have no idea what happened to it. I certainly don't have it anymore. But it was this single flower that had pushed up through asphalt. So it was this really beautiful flower. But the caption on the poster said, growth is the only evidence of life. I mean, if something is not growing, we assume it's dead. And have you ever encountered somebody, a person, a real person who in many ways was just dead? Yeah, I certainly have. Boy, that is not a position that's attractive to me. I don't have easy answers for what you ask. Great question, Nathan. I can't be responsible for the decisions that other people make, but certainly I'm never going to be content to just stay where things are. I'm going to be looking for, how can I be better? And I certainly encourage others to do the same. Well, wow, that's a meaty one. We're going to go faster in the rest of the questions. But anyway, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to 48 Days Online Radio. You can check out some of the things that we're, we're talking about here come from people who are involved in the 48days.net community. I encourage you to go there, check it out. No cost to be involved, but it's a way to connect with other people who do, in fact, want to be better. Trust me, if there are people there who don't want to be better, they're going to feel very uncomfortable. They really are. They're going to get bored. They're going to realize they're in the wrong neighborhood because people in that community are saying, I want to do more, have more, be more, go more, offer more, give more, all those things. That's kind of the underlying theme. And it's not just implicit, it's explicit. That's what we're doing there. If you're in that category, we'd invite you to join that community. And if you got a question that you'd like to have in the slot here for an upcoming podcast, just go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link, and you'll see a place there where you can shoot your question in. David from South Dakota. Now, get the image in your mind, South Dakota. That's kind of out there. There's not a whole lot of real high-density population areas in South Dakota. And thus, David's question I live in a small town, and so do many of my friends and family. We have just as many skills and abilities as people in larger cities, but we don't have access to a large market. You just told a story about 
have a hot dog stand is more secure than going to a job because 376 people have to say no. But what if your whole town doesn't have 376 people? Also, you often say that opening a bookstore will only draw people from five miles around. I routinely drive 75 miles to visit my favorite bookstore. I can assume part of your advice will be get online. I'm there with my woodworking. And uh, David's site is wispwoods.com. But even with the website, it's tough to drive sales because of shipping cost. What advice do you have for small town creatives? Well, it's a great question. And I don't want to live in a big city. I mean, we live in Franklin, Tennessee. It's about 20 miles south of Nashville, but it's a small community. There, There's all kinds of things that I dislike about big cities. I mean, I would never live in Miami or New York or L.A., places like that drive me nuts. I mean, I, I'm a country kid. But I want to take advantage of the opportunities in business. So, yeah, you do have to figure out how you're going to do that if you want to really exponentially have incremental success in your business. Now, your work is beautiful. I did go to your website, Wisp Woods. You obviously already understand online marketing. I mean, you're not going to have enough market for what you're doing already in a little tiny town that doesn't have 300 people in it. So you're already doing that. And really, there are very few businesses that are going to, to thrive and prosper just in small towns. Even yesterday, Joanna and I were, were going to dinner and we drove past Barnes & Noble and there weren't very many cars in the parking lot. She commented and I said, yeah, Barnes & Noble is in trouble. I mean, Borders is already closed. Barnes & Noble is struggling to stay alive. I mean, they've got a pretty vibrant online presence already, but I don't think it's going to be enough to save their, their physical stores or bricks and mortar stores. It's an old model. Look at what happened to all the video rental stores, blockbuster video, Hollywood video. They're all gone. I mean, that opportunity has gone. I mean, it would be ludicrous to have a physical rental place for movies at this point. Well, books are kind of on the bubble. It's just not a model that makes sense anymore. I, I hate to see that, but it's just a reality that we have to have to deal with. But if you look at the kind of work that you're doing, you're doing beautiful woodwork. Can you expand that and continue to live in South Dakota? Sure. I mean, look at what P. Graham Dunn has done. I'm, I'm sure looking at your work, you're probably familiar with his work. P. Graham Dunn. I know Peter. Uh, it's Peter Graham. Uh, he, he started in his mom and dad's barn in Dalton, Ohio, but they do this beautiful engraving. I mean, I've got pieces that we give away here, like lead with vision where there's no vision. The people perish. It's laser engraving on cherry wood. The pieces are absolutely stunning. And you see them in bookstores, certainly Christian bookstores uh, in as much as they still exist. But Peter's got a really big business. He has his own stores in Gatlinburg and a couple other places. But the work is done in Dalton, Ohio, which is in the middle of a cow pasture. I mean, there's nothing there. And of course, I grew up in the Amish Mennonite community where there's a whole lot of people who are living in very low population areas, and yet they have massive businesses. People like the guys from Wayne Doors from Mount Hope, Ohio. I mean, Mount Hope is this one little town. They don't even have a traffic light. Wayne Doors, probably the biggest producer of commercial doors 
in the world. They come out of there. They're shipped out of there. So, yeah, I don't think it's a, really a problem to be connected. I mean, we, uh, we've got a, uh, a friend on 48days.net, Andy Traub, who lives in South Dakota. Well, Andy facilitates podcasts for authors. He started doing Andy Andrews a year or so ago, and now he does several other authors. He just landed the biggest contract he's ever had in his life that'll run for the next year. But he's doing extremely well with the things that he's doing. And they choose to continue living in a very remote part of South Dakota. So, yeah, you know, the, the opportunities have changed. And can you do something that's based just on the geography where you, really nobody is doing that anymore? It's very, very difficult to have a business that's going to be based just on the geographical location that you have. Certainly we see some of those, but most of those we see are franchises where they have hundreds of locations. So they're not, they're still not dependent on one single geographic location. Yeah, you can do it. Keep doing what you're doing. Expand, have other opportunities for distributors to market the work that you're doing. looks like you're right on track. Margie from Henderson, Tennessee, Hendersonville, Tennessee says, I've been a secretary for over 25 years and I make less than $30,000. I'm looking to earn additional income by utilizing my strengths. I write well, I break down and organize information well. I love to teach. I have a blog, lifelifted.org. Its readership has doubled since December, which I'm very thankful for. I know that at some point I'll be teaching and writing based on the information I put in my blog. But in the meantime, I need to want to increase my income. Every time I think about this for myself, I get all muddled. If I were helping someone else, I have more ideas than you could shake a stick at. Help. Thanks. God bless. Let me read another question here and I'll tie the two together. Tony from Portland, Oregon says, hi, Dan, I've listened to enough of your podcast and done enough research to know that a blog can bring in money. I just launched christianmarriedmom.com and I'm hopeful, but can read, but I've read that it can take at least a year until a blog becomes profitable. Can you offer a 48 days type strategy for making money with a new blog? Thanks for all you do. Yes. So we've got Margie and Tony have both asked about Christian focused blogs. Is there any chance to make money? Yes. And time is not the issue here. Time has nothing to do with whether you make money on a blog. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, obviously it takes some time to build an audience, but time in itself isn't going to change anything about how your blog is working or how much money you're making. So you've got to be very strategic about if you want to make money from a blog. Now, I don't really try to make money from my blog. I mean, I and blessed with a big readership and have been doing the blog for a long time, but I see it just as a way to then send people back to other parts of our business where we do make money. So I've never looked at the blog as anything, but just kind of a business card. Same way that I consider this podcast newsletter, even my books. I just consider those business cards to give out to people so that they then get involved in the 48 days.net community, come back to 48 days.com. They come to live events. They get involved in our coaching programs. They do the things where we really make money, but can you make money with a blog? Sure. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, look at having affiliate links. Now, Margie, I looked at yours and you have a link to 48 days.com. It's just a straight link to 48 days.com. You need to make that a, a affiliate link so that it tracks, 
traffic that comes from your blog to our site. That means if anybody comes from your blog to our site and they purchase a book, you're going to get a commission on that. I think it's like 18% that you get as soon as anybody purchases anything. So you make sure that those links that you've got on your site are affiliate links. And if you go to our site and just put in, you know, affiliate program or whatever, you know, it'll take you right to that. It's very simple. You, you don't have to get approval from us or anything. You just go through and you get a banner that you can put on your site or just make sure that that 48days.com reference is a hyperlink. So it tracks and it shows us that came from Margie and then we'll send you checks every month for any purchases made. So certainly you want to do that. Link to other books and resources. You can have lots of resources available from your blog. Don't have to be resources you created or books that you wrote at all. Just affiliate links. You can do that with Amazon immediately where you get a, a commission for anything that people go through and then purchase at Amazon. You can get a commission for that. All the books that I recommend when people go to ask for my reading list, those are all hyperlinked through Amazon. And once a month, Amazon puts a nice deposit in my checking account. So you want to do the same. If you really want to get serious about how to get affiliate income, check out what Pat Flynn is doing at Smart Passive Income. If you just put in smart passive income, no spaces, smartpassiveincome.com, you'll go to see what Pat Flynn is doing. He is, I mean, it's amazing what he's doing. He just shows people the resources. If you want to start a blog, here's a site that'll help you get up and run. If you need a host, go to Bluehost. If you need this, boom, he shows you all these resources. Those are all hyperlinked. He's very open about that. And Pat generates, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a month just from affiliate income. Check out Michael Hyatt. I mean, check out, you know, my buddy of mine, go to michaelhyatt.com. You've heard me talking about him. Scroll down the right side of his blog. Now his basic page is just a blog site. It's just on WordPress, but michaelhyatt.com. Look on the right-hand side, scroll down. You're going to see all kinds of banner ads and affiliate links there. I mean, you can do that. I mean, Mike and Gail were over at our house the other night for dinner, and we were talking about some of the cool things that we both got planned. We're doing some things together this year. Mike's going to be speaking at our Innovate conference. I'll be speaking at his launch conferences. But um, the, the opportunities are astounding. He and I both are, are attending seminars and workshops heavily this year. Uh, he just got back from one, was sharing about that. I'm going to one. I was sharing about that. But um, uh, we're rarely ramping up in the very area that you're talking about and um, looking at ways that we can increase income from blogs and things that we're doing like that. So, yeah, you can do that. Great question. Okay, this question says, uh, over the last year, I've sent out over 100 resumes, received a few rejection letters. I live in California, but I'm also looking in Tennessee and Texas for work. I've had my resume looked at by professionals. They say it looks great but I still never get a call back. I worked at a leading coffee company for nine years. I received great reviews from my bosses. I was in charge of one customer that had almost 300 stores in my area. Sales were close to 10 million a year. But now when my unemployment runs, runs out, I'm going to be looking at minimum wage jobs. I've sold just about everything I can just to pay the rent, got rid of things like cable TV. I don't know what else to do. Well, what you need to do, and I, I feel your pain but you need to change your job search strategy. 
just sending out resumes. I suspect you're finding things online like monster.com, hot jobs, places like that, where you find job openings, you send your resume there. You can do that thousands and thousands and thousands of times over and never get a call back. It's a process that doesn't work. What you need to be doing is you identify the skills that you have. You know really clearly what your highest areas of competence are. Then you identify 30 to 40 companies that would be prospective matches right there around where you live. I mean, you live in uh, Corona, California. My gosh, draw a line 15 miles from your house. Make a circle. Identify companies there. Now, here's the real key. Here's the difference. You don't have to wait until you see that a company is hiring. By the time you see that a company is hiring, you've lost your best window of opportunity because what you're seeing, 3,000 other people are seeing as well. And they may be better candidates than you. You take the initiative. So it doesn't matter if a company hasn't advertised anything. That's how we find the 87% of the hidden job market. 87% of the job market is never advertised, promoted, posted anywhere at all. And you find that by making contacts proactively, even if you don't know that they're hiring. That's why we have candidates day after day after day say where they, they hired or they got hired. The, the companies are saying, how did you know we needed somebody like you? Well, we didn't. But the company profile was a match for the kind of services this person, person provided, knew they could offer, the value they bring to the table. So you contact those companies. It's in doing that. So we can find where the gap is. I mean, the process of getting a job is doing a resume, sending a resume out, getting interviews, getting offers, negotiating. Boom. So we can see where is it breaking down. If you're not even getting interviews, then we need to back up. Now, if so, we either need to look at your resume and say, gee, does this really present you well. If it doesn't, let's modify it. Now you said you've had it looked at. Everybody says it's great. I'm going to assume that it is. So it's not in your resume. It's in sending them out in this blind process. No, identify companies, real life companies, not just online ads, companies where you would like to work right in your area. That's going to stir up some new opportunities. Then the process though is send out an intro letter first. Just tell them, I'm looking, uh, this is my background, I'm exploring new opportunities, I live right here in this area, you can expect to get from me a cover letter and a resume in the next four or five days. So we start to create that repetitive top of mind positioning. That This is a process, it's a marketing principle and it works any day of the year, any year you want to do it. It just flat works. So we create that top of mind positioning, okay? Now you've notified them they're going to get your cover letter and resume, then you do that. Then you follow up with a phone call. I mean, that process alone is going to break the ice through the, through what you're describing here. If you're doing that, you cannot send out hundreds and not get interviews and offers. It just doesn't work. So just modify your job search strategy and you're going to break through that. I'll tell you what, I'll send you a fresh copy of 48 days to the work you love. I don't know if you have that, but what I want you to do is go in there, just go through the job search strategy in there. Nothing complicated about it, but you can go through that. And I'm confident, I'm 100% confident you can break the ice in 30 days, have real offers, even after what you describe here has happened. All right, EO from Philadelphia says, Dan, thanks to your ideas and your work, 
thanks to ideas in your work, I've started building my career as an artist over the past year. I've had success and I'm moving forward every day, yet I feel building to the point that this is the sole source of my income will be a continuing process. In the meantime, opportunities come my way for my other skills, namely IT work. My question is, how can I craft a plan forward that allows me to balance the immediate financial rewards of my IT ability with my long-term goal of working as an artist? My art is the work I love and I'm impatient to make it my only career. I vacillate between worrying if I take an IT job, I won't be fully committed and worrying that by taking it, I create distractions from my goal of being an artist. Very interested in your thoughts on this. Thanks very much. I may not give you the answer that you want. You know what my encouragement is? Do both. Now, we already started off talking about some artists who are doing extremely well and doing just art. Do I think it can be done? Absolutely. Do I think it's easy or common? No, it's not. I think it's still rare to provide significant income just from doing art alone. But what I'm saying is don't put yourself in a position where you're desperate to force your art to be your only source of income. Wow, what an amazing position you describe where you have very easily marketable IT skills that pay you well. Again, we, we talked about how to have that balance. If you give 40 hours of selfless giving work to your company, boom, great trade-off. Now you've got 128 hours in the week left that you can choose to do whatever you want. If in that period of time you do some art, golly, once a month you go to an art show, you sell a few pieces, you get the satisfaction, the gratification of having people give you money for something you've done. You see it on the walls in their homes. I mean, what a cool kind of thing. Do you really need to force that to go all the way in that direction and put yourself in a position of not knowing month to month if you're going to have enough to pay the mortgage? I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of artists do that. Again, do I think it's possible? Yes. But with what you're describing, and as I often do, you know, I look for and solutions, not either or. Why do we have to make it black and white where either it's this or it's that? No, what if we did both? What if you had a core career that takes care of all your financial needs, you're in great shape, and then you do what you really are passionate about? I mean, you can give things. You could give a piece that you've done to an orphanage to hang in the wall. I mean, you can donate one to an auction. It's going to be a fundraiser for a worthy cause. I mean, think of the things that you could do if you didn't have the pressure to have your art produce the daily needs that you have financially. Now, if you ever get to the point where things really take off, then congratulations, go for it. But be careful about too quickly burning a bridge or um, killing the golden goose as it may be. Hey, this is John Tash, host of Intelligence for Your Life, and you're listening to my good buddy, Dan Miller. You know, finding your purpose and passion is the first step to living out intelligence in your own life. 48 days can show you the way. Now, back to Dan. All right, next question comes from Louise in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dan, I've listened to your podcast for the past 18 months. They have been truly inspirational. Thank you. I followed my passion after many years in the retailing industry by becoming an exercise coach for toddlers. I travel to schools five days of the week, run exercise classes, which are tons of fun for both me and the children. 
My franchise is just over a year old and I'm really ready to, I'm really starting to reap the benefits financially. However, my husband now wants a divorce. And although my business is financially viable, I would need to ramp it up by another 50% to cover the cost of moving my son and myself out to another house, paying for insurance, electricity, and so on. Would I be better to look for a job, put my business up for sale? Thank you for all your wise words, sincerely, Louise. Well, Louise, I'm so sorry about your divorce. I mean, it's heart-wrenching for anyone to have to go through that. And I know in a time of a grief and change like that, unwelcome, unexpected change, I assume, you know, it, it's really easy just to kind of pare down, just to go back to what's safe and predictable and comfortable. But you know what? I'm not going to recommend that you do that. If you're doing that well with a franchise, and this is a um, exercise coach for toddlers. So I assume you've got a franchise like stretch and grow or something. One of those franchises, I would definitely look for ways to ramp that up because you're already in something that gives you, you know, more flexibility and more open-ended income opportunity than a job is likely to give you. Now you have to make the ultimate decision on this, but I think you're in something already where you've, proven your ability to go out here to do something extraordinary, to do something that's non-traditional and creative. And once you've opened the door to do that, you really open the door to a whole lot of possibilities that you are not going to have if you just go back and get a traditional job. So I'd say rather than selling your business and getting a job, yeah, ramp this up. Look for ways that you can expand on what you're already doing there. Um, and without going into detail, some of the other people that I've already referenced today are in a situation much like what you're describing. And it's because of going through divorce that they are ramping up what they're doing creatively to give them you know, extraordinary income, to give them uh, a sense of really being connected, of really being engaged rather than going back and looking for a safe harbor. Okay, this one comes from, uh, hello, Dan Farmer. Okay, I don't see. Oh, Alan. All right, Alan says, Dan, I have what you call a hot potato. Why are there few, if any, black speakers? I looked at your website, and with all the photos taken in classes and training, I don't see any. This is not to be offensive, I'm just curious, since I'm black, even on most of the popular well-known speaker sites, it appears to be the same. Any ideas why? Thanks for helping people around the world. I'm not sure that you're sure that you're seeing a real accurate overview. Now, we, we have people like Thomas Rich. My gosh, I should have gone through and looked at some of the black speakers that we, and coaches that we have. We certainly have some. Is it a majority? No, but, but I, I mean, we're going to find groupings. If you go to a site like American program bureau, I mean, I know that's one of, that's a, a black speakers site. I mean, they have, geez, Les Brown, Terry McMillan, Juan Williams, Magic Johnson, Damon John from Shark Tank, Donna Brazil, Natalie Cole, Jesse Jackson. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black speakers who are certainly well-known household recognized names. So, and I don't think that it's, 
I, I don't think that we're talking about something that's racist, you know, that they have their own speakers bureau and that they aren't seen heavily in some of the other speakers bureaus. I mean, I think we all, uh, there's still birds of a feather flock together. I think there's strength in having an affinity groups, people that we identify with, you know, do we welcome, if you come to our events that we have here live at the sanctuary, I mean, you're always going to see African-American participants here. I mean, we have lots of people in our 48 days network who are African-American. I mean, we welcome that. Am I trying to, you know, equal the score? No, I don't even look like that. I mean, we just love on people. We have Hispanics and, and on our recent cruise, you know, we had people, we had uh, Jewish people and we had Hispanics and we had Mormons. And I mean, all those things that are ethnic or religious or whatever groups, we just consider subsets of this as a human being that we love and care about. So it certainly hasn't been any kind of dividing line in our business. And if you want to be more involved, we would certainly welcome that goodness. Well, hey, great questions. My goodness. Love these questions. I love that this is, this is like candy for me during the week to be able to pop open the questions here and go through these and go through the challenges, try to figure out solutions that we can all use to help us be more effective, help us to be better people as we're finding and creating work that is truly purposeful, fulfilling, meaningful, and profitable. Thanks for being connected with the 48 Days Community.